I decided this week we would talk about the meaning of life. Not uh, a small topic, our purpose, our meaning to life, uh, but it's actually the, uh, the topic of many different books uh, in the self-help section of every good bookstore. People say, who write books like this, that uh, if you can find your purpose, you will find your meaning. If you can find your purpose, you will find your motivation. If you can find your purpose, you will find your drive in life. And the big question for us today is this. Is the meaning of life, is our drive, our purpose, our meaning, our motivation, is it an individual thing? Is it just what we create for ourselves? Or is it in some way, ways hardwired into our humanity? Because one thing is for sure, humanity wants to find the meaning of life and tries to find it in all sorts of places. Throwing themselves headlong into family, or to work, or to building a legacy for themselves. But when lots of people have tried this and it fails to satisfy, they can sometimes turn to the Bible. And in the very first book of the Bible, we have, from beginning to end, from chapter 1 through to chapter 50 of the book of Genesis, the meaning of life written large on its pages, just as it is on all of the other pages of the Bible as well. As we come to the end of the book of Genesis, the end of this series on the bloodline, Genesis 25 to 50, we'll see this. This is the meaning of life that you and I were made for faith in the promise-keeping God. That's what we were made for. That's our meaning and purpose to life and nothing short of this will satisfy. Sometimes people say this is not a theme you see in the Old Testament, the theme of faith in the promise-keeping God. But what we'll see this morning is that this theme is right on the pages of the very first book of the Bible. The Old Testament is not about rules and laws and keeping God happy in that way. No, it's about, it's about faith. And this morning we're going to look at these last three chapters of the book of Genesis and see how God works, what he wants for our life and what the meaning to our life really is. And I'll answer a couple of questions just quickly at the end. And so if you've got a question, slido.com, the hashtag is HBSP for that. Uh, so uh, please uh, ask those questions and I'll try to answer them a little later on. Let me pray. Keep your Bible open and we're going to ask God for help as we look at his word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be with us this morning. We ask for your uh, wisdom to be uh, speaking through me and for us all to be listening to what your word says so that we might not only hear it but put it into practice and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Does anyone know what back masking is? Back masking. Have you heard of that before? Back masking is when you play a song backwards and it's got a hidden message inside it. In the 1970s and 80s in Christian circles, it was a terrifying thing that you might listen to a song forwards and then somehow be influenced by what could be said and heard when you put the song backwards. Now, first of all, no one's putting the song backwards, so I don't know why we were so worried about it. And secondly, even if you could, who knows what it would say? There were all sorts of strange messages that bands put in there just to mess with people on purpose. Today, as we live, uh, of course, you don't need a backwards message inside the song. The forwards message of the songs are bad enough by themselves, so that you don't need that backwards message especially, at all. Especially your music. Uh, that's right, that's right, that's right. And uh, let's not get started on Tay-Tay. But it, uh, it's a metaphor, though, this backmasking idea of how God works. The real message of how God works is when you see things in reverse. 
when you see things backwards. Because God acts differently to what we expect. The message is not what we might expect it to be on the surface. It's actually in reverse. We've seen this right throughout the book of Genesis and we see it clearly in chapter 48. God, the God of promise, gives his blessing in an unexpected way once again. You might remember uh, the story of the bloodline has been the promises given to Abraham and then to Isaac and now to Jacob, the dad of 12 boys who is now ill near to death. And chapter 48 tells us the story of Joseph, his favourite son who had been sold off in years gone by but finally reunited. His favourite son comes to close his eyes as we saw in last week's passage. And he brings with him to the bedside his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. I don't know if you've done that before. Just this week I was asked to visit a man who was dying. I didn't know him, never met him before, but I was asked to go and visit a dying man and sit at his bedside and read some scripture and pray with him. And as I sat there and waited for uh, him, uh, as he heard me speak and pray, he sort of roused himself out of his stupor to be able to, well, I think, react to what I was doing, what I was saying. It's a, it's a very moving place, even when you don't know the people you're meeting with. It's a moving place to see people in their last breaths, in their last moments. And here Joseph goes not to anyone, but to his dad. And he sits beside his dad, and in chapter 48, verse 2, we read this. It was told to Jacob, his dad, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, remember that's just another name for Jacob, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at last in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Jacob knows that he is the one who holds the promises of God. And even though now he lives in Egypt, he still has the promises of God, the very great promises, the land and offspring and blessing promises of Genesis chapter 12. And he goes on to say to Joseph, Joseph, my son, now your two children will be included in those very great promises of God. This is a major moment here. Jacob is saying to Joseph, your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, will be counted in the bloodline of God's people as equal with you, as one of my sons. They will directly inherit the promises as you do, Joseph. And then as we've just had read for us, there's a, much of an ancient adoption ritual that goes on here for much of the rest of the chapter. As Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. Now there's a lot of detail in this chapter, but did you notice what was going on here? Here, once again in the book of Genesis, we have a father bestowing a blessing upon others while he is near enough to blind. It reminds us of what Isaac did many chapters before. Blind, but giving the blessing to Jacob instead of his firstborn son Esau. And as we saw on that occasion, there is here also a reversal of the order of blessing. 
The expectation, of course, as it had been throughout the scriptures to this point, is that the blessing would be given to the firstborn. But this is not the case. Jacob reverses the blessing, much to the disgust of Joseph. Joseph tries to change the hand order so the blessing might go in different directions. But the blessing of God through the man that holds the promises, Jacob, sees that Ephraim would be blessed first. Now, they were both blessed, these boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. But Ephraim would be so blessed that his name would become a synonym for the nation of Israel. His land would become so big. The people of the tribe of Ephraim would become so large that for much of the rest of the Old Testament, Ephraim becomes synonymous with the nation of Israel itself. And Manasseh was blessed, but nowhere near to the same degree. This reminds us of how God often works in the world. This has been the story of the book of Genesis all the way through to this point. God often works in the reverse method to the world around us. I listen to a few different podcasts at different times. And there's one podcast that I, uh, I like to, to listen to. It, 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 uh, it's an interview series. It contains uh, people who uh, have, have significantly done things in sport and music and the arts. And at the end of each one of the interviews, the interviewer says... Uh, uh, there's lots of kids travelling in the car at the moment to all their different activities. What would you say to them? And nine times out of ten, the interviewee says, if you work hard, you'll get what you want to achieve. Now, it's not wrong, is it? If you work hard, you probably will get what you want to achieve. In the world around us, that's how life works. If you work hard and you put in plenty of effort, you'll probably receive the rewards of that more often than not. But of course, it doesn't go like that with God. It doesn't work like that with the one who made us. It doesn't go like that for the redeemer of the universe. Not so with God. God's blessings, God's grace, God's favour does not come by our hard work. It does not come because we deserve it. It does not come because we put ourselves in first place. It does not come because we exalt ourselves. It does not come because we save our own life. It does not come because of any of these reasons. The blessing of God comes to us precisely through the opposite means of every other worldly pursuit. Not because we deserve it, but because we realise we don't deserve it. Not because we're first, but we made last. Not because we exalt ourselves, but we humble ourselves. Not because we want to save our life, but because we will lose our life for the sake of the gospel and then find our life in Jesus. In fact, Jesus says this, when you're ready to come and die, then you're ready for me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus says, come and die and you'll find the blessing of the world. You'll find the blessing of eternity. This is... God doing things in reverse, God doing things backwards, God doing things in the opposite way to the way our world around us works. And you and I need to know we live in a work hard world, don't we? Why else are we so busy but to work really hard to squeeze the sponge to get the most out of our lives? 
And as we swim in this world, in a hard work world, it would be fair enough to suggest that as we swim the most of the hours of the week in a world like this, that we would pick up some of its ethics and transfer them to what we think about God and our relationship with him. But this passage and the, uh, the whole of Genesis 25 to 50, in fact, the whole Bible is a story not of what we earn, but of grace. God's blessings to us through the grace of Jesus Christ. Which is good news for us. Because it means what God has given, he cannot and will not take away from us. The promise of God's blessing is given in an unexpected way and it will not be taken away from us under any circumstances. Even death. I'm going to jump over chapter 49 and straight to chapter 50 where we see Jacob and Jacob's death. You might remember last week Jacob instructed his sons to bury him at home back in the promised land as it would become known. And the, the, uh, the journey is in the beginning of chapter 50. The journey to take his body back and be buried alongside Abraham and Isaac and others who were there. And after being laid to rest, after Jacob's life had been finished and buried and there'd been closure on that chapter for the family, there's a worry about what might happen next. Come with me to chapter 50, verse 15. Chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us, and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants, of the servants of God, the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came down and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. As was promised in chapter 37, once again the brothers bowed down before Joseph as prophesied. But will he pay them back for all the wrong that they did to him, selling him off to Egypt and all of the wrong stuff they did? The brothers want to make sure this is not going to happen, so they make up a message that their dad might have said but didn't actually say. Make sure you forgive us, make sure you forgive us, and Joseph says this, verse 19, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See what he says in verse 20? I know what you did was evil. You threw me down that, that well and had me sold off to Egypt. That was evil. But God was not playing catch up along the way saying, oh no, there's an evil thing happening. Now I need to change my plans. No, God was all the way through working in and through this situation in a relentless pursuit of his own promises. 
After all of the hardship of Joseph's life, what he realised is that God was in relentless pursuit of his own promises. Genesis 1 to 11 tells us the story of how bad humanity can be when they combine together to do things. That's how it ends in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. It's funny, we think, don't we, that the more we get human beings together, the better the world will be. It's not what Genesis says. Genesis says human ingenuity will not fix the world, it'll make the world worse. Humanism does not work. And Genesis 1 to 11 is all about the, hum- uh, the horror of humanity, going from bad to worse, making things worse all the time. And Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the great land, offspring and blessing promises are so good because they tell us of God's intervening grace. God is going to intervene in the world and through this dumb family, he will save the world. Abraham, a pagan from Ur, called to follow the Lord God. Isaac, the child who was never supposed to be, brought into the promises of God. Jacob, the deceiver, the second born, who wasn't actually supposed to be the one that inherited the promises, he was the one who did inherit the promises. And then Judah, who would become the leader of the next generation, a man who slept with a prostitute, and did not obey God in so many different ways, but was, an, was a repentant man, would then lead the people of God. And in Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, I know God was at work in relentless pursuit of his promises. I know that what you did was evil, but what God is doing is the relentless pursuit of his promises. I wonder, what's going on for you in your life at the moment? Do you look at your life and you think, there's so many bad things in my life. What is happening in my life? It's hard to see God at work in my life. If that's the type of question that you're asking, you need to know you're in good company because Joseph would have asked all the same questions. Thrown down a well, sold to Egypt, then in a jail for many years, then in a position of power, things were good then in trouble once again. Up and down, up and down. Your life might feel the same. And at times you might doubt God's goodness for you. But you need to know this. God is in relentless pursuit of his own promises. God is in relentless pursuit of his own promises. Another way of putting it is this. God is for his own glory. And the way he achieves his own glory is is, uh, making sure that he is for his promises in relentless pursuit of his promises. Now, sometimes when, when you hear this, people say, if God's all about his glory and all about his promises, how can that be good for me? I seem like I'm I'm second rate compared to God's own glory and God's own promises. It seems a bit selfish on behalf of of God. How can that be? Well, to help us understand this, I want you to think about families for a minute. One of the worst things that families can do is focus too much on their kids. Seems a strange thing to say, doesn't it? Focus too much on their kids. Here's what I mean by that. 
When a family focus too, it focuses too much on their kids, they take away the one thing that their kids need the most, and that is a strong marriage between the husband and the wife. If in your family you are so focused on the kids that you neglect the relationship between husband and wife, you are actually neglecting your children. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? It doesn't make sense. To actually care for the kids, the thing you need to do is care for your own relationship. That's the most important thing and the thing that your kids need the most. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? To help your children, you need to focus away from your children and onto something else. And so it is with God. God is best able to care for us when he is in relentless pursuit of his glory and his promises. From the outside, it looks selfish on behalf of God to do such a thing. But when God is in relentless pursuit of his glory through keeping his promises, that is what is best for us, his children. It's not selfish. It's what's best for us. God is in relentless pursuit of his promises. Joseph understood it. And when your life is going up and down and you can't quite see God at work, be reminded God is in relentless pursuit of his promises. And look again to the cross to see what he has done for you. And so we come finally to the end of the book of Genesis. Joseph at the age of 110, a good old age, dies. And before he dies, he says, wait. Look at verse 25 of chapter 50. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. He says to his brothers, wait for God. He will deliver you. And in the meantime, trust God and remember who you are. This is the story of God's people right throughout the Bible. And it's the story of us. God says to us similarly, wait for, wait for me, God says. I will return. And in the meantime, trust me and remember who you are. This is the story of God's people throughout the ages. As they were in Egypt for the next 400 years... Wait for God, trust, and in the meantime, remember who you are. While they were in Babylon 70 years, wait, trust God, and remember who you are. The 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament, wait, trust God, and remember who you are. Us today, wait for God, trust Him, and remember who you are. And out of all of the Joseph story, out of all we've seen from chapter 37 all the way through to chapter 50, in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11, verse 22 says this. It's a strange verse to talk about. You'll see it on the screen. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. <laughs> Out of all of the things you could have highlighted from the life of Joseph, the writer of Hebrews decides to highlight this. Why? Why? Well, because through all of the ups and downs of the life of Joseph, he knew who he was. He knew that God would deliver his people. And so he says, wait. And he knew where he'd belong. So he said, take my bones and take them out of here and off 
to Egypt, uh, sorry, off, off to the promised land home when you get out of here. This was a sign of the faith that Joseph had. He was waiting, trusting God and remembering who he was even in his death. And so for you and me, we're to follow in the, in the steps of Joseph as we wait for the Lord Jesus, trusting in God and remembering who we are in him. See, from chapter 1 of the book of Genesis all the way through to chapter 50, the same theme has been in there all along. The theme of the purpose of life, the theme of what we were created for. We were created, we were made to trust God, to have faith in the promise-keeping God, the promise-keeping God who relentlessly pursues his promises. This is what the whole Bible is about. This is what your whole life is about. To know God, to trust him, to wait for him to return. And in the meantime, in this world, to know who you are. I'm going to stop there and see if there are any questions or comments on Slido. You might like to ask a couple. I'm going to pause just for a bit and read a couple of them and then answer them. And then we'll sing our final song. Clear as mud. No questions. I'm going to pray for us. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for showing us uh, the meaning and the purpose of our life to trust you. And we ask, please, that you would help us in all areas of life where we can see your hand and when we can't, to trust you. And that uh, as we know, we await your return. We pray, please, that uh, you would help us uh, to wait and trust you. Uh, and in the meantime, know who we are, as Joseph did and uh, as, uh, as your word in the book of Hebrews commends his faith for having done so. We pray that you might help us to do the same thing as we swim around in this world that sees uh, achievement as the goal. We pray that you would help us to be reminded that uh, uh, trusting your grace is the goal for our life. Uh, we pray, please, that you would help us to see that both as a success in life and as the meaning and purpose of why we are here. We pray that you would move us uh, from where we are uh, that we might continue to trust you in all that we do uh, in each part of our life. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.